0: Your ability to tolerate a period of sleep deprivation is much better if you come into that period well-rested.
1: Hello and welcome to Brain Boy Neurology. I'm your host, Jamie Holliman. Let's get started. Welcome to Brain Boy Neurology podcast where we explore clinical neurology through discussions with experts in the field. We've got a great episode today on a crucial topic within neurology and within residency in general. We'll be discussing sleep deprivation during residency. This is a controversial topic within medical education, given how many total and consecutive hours residents work and the detrimental impact this has on their sleep and performance. I would estimate most residents work between 60 to 100 hours a week, with each day lasting anywhere from 10 to 28 hours. Here at Wash U, for the majority of our second year and for most of our third year, we work 28-hour shifts every four days, which in residency lingo is called a Q4 call schedule. This is a common schedule for most large academic residency programs, but when I tell my friends and family, they're typically shocked and immediately worried, both for me and more importantly for my patients. They think it's pretty insane that I would have to make complex medical decisions after being up for 24 hours straight. Throughout my training, I I learned to deal with this schedule the best I could and considered it an unfortunate but ultimately unchangeable aspect of residency training. But today, I'd like to step back and consider this issue more fully. What are the consequences of this sleep deprivation for us residents and for our patients? Are there any alternatives to our current schedule? Are there any steps you can take as a resident to mitigate the effects of sleep deprivation? That's what we'll be discussing today. As you'll hear, this is a complex issue with no straightforward answer, but I think it's definitely worth discussing. For this interview, I'll be talking with the wonderful Dr. Gabriela de Bruin. She's a neurologist here at WashU who specializes in the treatment of patients with sleep disorders. Dr. de Bruin completed medical school at the Federal University of Serra in Brazil, and then came to WashU for her neurology residency. She stuck around to do a fellowship in sleep medicine, and then became a faculty member at WashU, where she currently works treating patients with sleep disorders she gives a, a lecture every year to the residency program on sleep deprivation and so she's the perfect person to talk about this topic. I really hope you enjoy our conversation. Awesome. I'm sitting here with uh, Dr. De Dr. De Bruin, thanks so much for being willing to chat with me.
0: Oh, my pleasure.
1: And so today we'll be talking about sleep deprivation during residency and specifically looking at some of the scheduling changes that occur during residency that might lead to sleep deprivation. But before we get into that stuff, I just wanted to ask you a couple of questions about your own career development. And so what initially got you interested in neurology?
0: Yeah, so um, so I, I guess I don't have like a, a very sort of unique um, story about that. I think the things that got me interested in neurology were similar to what a lot of people are interested by. I um, was torn between being a cardiologist or a neurologist mm-hmm. and I enjoyed neuroanatomy and uh, localization, and uh, just kind of like the investigative aspect of neurology. Also, when I was a student, which is over a decade ago now, um, cardiology was well into the algorithms and practice guidelines a lot more than neurology was at the time. And I had this feeling that in neurology, I, as an individual, I would have a greater ability to sort of impact and direct patient care, mm-hmm. whereas in neurology, I felt like for a lot of common conditions, I would sort of be more implementing, you know, guidelines that were sort of already out there and very well established. Just, you know, you do this for this and that for that, and it relied heavily on on testing and results. And I felt like there was a lot, I had this feeling that there was a more art of medicine and neurology and sort of more room for, for you as a physician to make a difference in the care of that patient. And, you know, that was attractive to me. So, so that's kind of what swayed me in the end.
1: Absolutely. That definitely makes sense. And you initially went to medical school in Brazil and that's then right. uh, came to do your residency in the U.S.?
0: Yep, that's right.
1: Yeah. What initially uh, prompted you to come to the U.S.?
0: Yeah. So so that was kind of a coincidence, not a coincidence, but it was, it was sort of a last minute My um, university had this exchange program with Wayne State University in Detroit. Yeah. And they had folks from Wayne State that came to Brazil and did rotations and folks from our university that went to Wayne State. And one of my good friends hosted um, a couple of students from Wayne State. She had gone to Detroit, was friends with them. They had come. They were actually staying with her. And we hung out, you know, and just it was fun. And I liked them. They were like, "Oh, you should come to Detroit; It would be great." You know, just mm-hmm. come in a few months. And so, in my last um, year of medical school, I went to Detroit for four months and um, did some rotations there. And at that point, I knew I was going into neurology. And I just, um, I just enjoyed the structure of residency. I appreciated how, in the U.S., residency programs were already very structured. You know, mm-hmm. duty hours were in already in place and um, things were sort of um there was a there was a large degree of uniformity and standardization in the training program, whereas in Brazil still depended a lot on where you went. Certainly there's no there were no duty hour regulations at the time. So oh, you know there's still Q2 call and you know Ooh. 14 days and, and all these things. And I just um I kind of like that organization and I was going to move for residency regardless so you know felt moving across the country moving across the world once you're moving you know there's a sort of a ceiling effect there and so that's yeah. that's what um, made me decide to to come and then of course in terms of um just technology and being sort of at the forefront of the therapies that are available you know there's no better place to be when you're training so that of course um, factored in into my decision as well. So, so yeah, that's how I ended up here.
1: Awesome. Did you have any uh, family or friends in the, the US beyond the Wayne State uh, guys? No,
0: no, no, I had to Yeah, I had these uh, couple friends in Detroit. And, uh, and that was it. Yep. I moved here with uh, one medium sized suitcase. And uh, that was it. And I, I moved to the Marriott near the Galleria until like I rented an apartment because, you know, I wasn't going to come to look for a house before I came. So I literally came to a hotel and found a house after I was here. Um, Impressive.
1: Okay. Yeah. And, uh, and then you trained at uh, Wash U for residency in neurology as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then uh, you're currently a, a sleep medicine uh, physician. Um, mm-hmm. What initially made you choose sleep medicine?
0: I was always interested in sleep physiology as a student. Um, I just thought it was just fascinating how sleep interacted with sort of all organ systems in the body, and there's um, not a whole lot that we understood about how that happened. And so I just loved reading about sleep. And um, and to be fair, both my parents are sleep physicians, so I was uh, exposed to the field fairly early. Yeah, but um, but I really enjoyed that aspect of it. Um, but, but, you know, liking to read about something and liking doing the day-to-day work is not the same. And so, um, and so I came into residency with a pretty open mind and, and tried to do quite a lot of clinical sleep to make sure I enjoyed, you know, enjoyed that aspect of things. And, and I did. And so that's, I like the balance between caring for patients and reading studies. I like, um, sleep as sort of a rapid feedback, um, kind of, you know, you see Mm. people, diagnose them, you can treat them pretty quickly. Um, and I, I enjoy that about it. I think it, you know, it feels faster paced and more efficient to me than some of the other specialties felt. And, hmm. and I, I like that about it. It's an outpatient specialty, which is something that I wanted. So it was just a good fit for the things that I enjoy doing.
1: Absolutely. That's fascinating to yeah. you. Both your parents are our sleep physicians. Uh, <laughs> did you, uh, Are they still practicing?
0: They are partly, they're both partly retired um, at this point. They're sort of, they're in phased retirement. I think that's what we call it.
1: Gotcha. Very cool. Did you, when you were sort of in your early days practicing, did you sort of share your clinical practice uh, experience with your parents and sort of talk about what it was like, or was it too disconnected?
0: To some extent. um, You know, I feel like when I first started practicing, I did general neurology and sleep Um, but, but at that point, you know, I was here, they were there, um, and just the, the practice structures were a little bit different, but, but yeah, we, we shared cases and I think, you know, it's, um, it's, it's nice to share that background and, and share that language and sort of them having an understanding of what I was going through in my different stages of training was, was, um, was fun, you know, and, uh, Mm -hmm. I think we did end up talking shop when I was in medical school and early in residency quite a bit because my sister's a lawyer and my brother's a physicist. And so they'd be like, why are we talking about this again? This is really boring, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Can we like not talk about medicine? Um, So I I do think we drifted to that, to that some in our conversations.
1: Fascinating. Very cool. And uh, before we turn over to to talk about sleep deprivation during residency, something I like to ask all the attendings is if you have a non-medical book recommendation.
0: Just a regular like fiction book that I like. Absolutely. Uh, I just, uh, I read a book called Hamnet by uh, Maggie Mm. Maggie O'Farrell. I hope I I hope I'm getting the author's name right. Um, And, um, and I like that a lot. It's um, it's a, totally 100% non-medical book. It's actually the story of William Shakespeare and and his wife and um, their child Hamnet who died um, at 11 and it has, it's, it's not a William Shakespeare book. Like he's not centered to the book at all. He's actually never mentioned by name, but it's an interesting um, story about, you know, a very, um, it's a very sensitive book about their relationship and that loss. And I thought it was really well-written. I really enjoyed it.
1: Beautiful. It's, it's called Hamnet?
0: Mm-hmm. Hamnet. It's yes. like Hamlet, but with an N.
1: Yeah. Very cool. I've got to check it out. I'm a huge uh, William Shakespeare fan, so I think it'd be yeah. interesting to kind of have something that rounds him out a little bit as a person. And, and mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I like. think you'd like it.
1: Very cool. Um, awesome. Well, uh, let's uh, jump into our topic for today. Um, and so uh, by means of introduction, I... I chose this topic. Uh, it's something that comes up a lot with uh, friends and family. Um, I mm-hmm. uh, personally um, don't have too many friends or family within medicine, and so mm-hmm. they'll always ask, um, "How's residency going?" And back when I was in med school, "How's medical school going?" And I'll sort of say, "You know, oh, I just finished a call shift, and you know, I'm, I'm kind of recovering at home, sleeping." And uh, they're just always so fascinated about, like, you know, you're working so many hours, and then they've got you. After a couple of days working another uh, long shift, and specifically here at WashU uh, during our second and third year, um, a lot of our time is uh, what's called Q4, a uh, 28-hour call, um, mm-hmm. where every fourth day we're in the hospital for uh, 24 hours um, and then have about four hours for administrative work to wrap things up, so uh, typically about 28 hours straight. And and so my f- friends and family are just so fascinated that that's the, the actual life of a, a resident, I think worried about sleep deprivation and so I I thought uh, it'd be interesting to to talk about it and a good way to get started and so you uh, give a talk each year to us residents about sleep deprivation and you use the term um, acute versus uh, chronic sleep
0: deprivation.
1: Um, Can you discuss a little bit what uh, acute and chronic sleep deprivation mean?
0: Sure. Um, so there's not sort of a time cutoff definition, but typically when you're talking about acute sleep deprivation, you're talking about one night or, you know, maybe two or three nights at most where somebody has gotten no sleep or they have been restricted to a very small amount of sleep. And um, and you see that a lot in research because it's obviously, you know, much easier to bring somebody and keep them up for one night than it is for, you know, a month. Um, And a lot of the studies done looking at, you know, effects of sleep deprivation um, are done in the acute sleep deprivation setting. In real life, sort of out in the world, a lot more of what we see is what we call chronic partial sleep deprivation, which is sleep deprivation that occurs over weeks, months, years, a lifetime, where people are not sleeping the amount, you know, that they need. So, somebody who, you know, is sleeping five, six hours a night during the work week, or, you know, maybe all the time even, and and that's the sleep that they get. So, um, so when we talk about chronic sleep deprivation, we're thinking more about this sort of long term insufficient sleep. Um, And acute is more that that one night or a couple nights where kind of like, you know, in your 28 hour call, so that would be an episode of acute sleep deprivation, you're just up, Whereas someone else may be, you know, working two jobs and raising a family and they maybe get to bed at midnight and have to get up at five and that's just their life for, you know, years. Mm-hmm. And and that would be more what we call chronic partial sleep deprivation. That makes sense.
1: And I've looked uh, into researching for this interview um, to try to find the recommendations for how much sleep a person should get a night. And I see sort of a range between seven and nine hours is typically what I see quoted is that typically what you recommend to patients?
0: Yeah. So the American Academy of Sleep Medicine a couple of years ago actually came out, and you know for a long time they'd resisted in, in sort of giving a amount of time because the reality is individual requirements vary. Mm-hmm. But um, but I think there was a lot of pressure for people to kind of have a benchmark, and so they said you know if you're an adult you should be getting at least seven hours of sleep. Mm-hmm. I can tell you you know for me personally I don't feel rested unless I get eight hours of sleep whereas someone else may feel fine, you know, getting seven hours of sleep. And I think a good measure of that is, you know, if you are on vacation, you don't have to get up at a certain time and you don't have anything sort of put on your plate and you can sleep as much as you want, how much do you sleep? Because your body's not gonna sleep more than it needs other than, you know, unless you're sort of recovering from sleep loss. And so so that, you know, should give somebody a sense of their sleep need. Because saying, oh, I feel fine on six hours, but you know, when I'm on vacation, I sleep nine, that probably means that six is not, is not really what you need.
1: Yeah. And uh, you say there's some individual variation. I I think we all have the friends who say, you know, I just need five hours of sleep and then I'm ready to go and and I feel okay. Are, are these people lying to themselves or are they potentially? uh...
0: Most of the time. Yeah. I think most of the time, a true short sleepers are very rare. Um, I think that there, you know, it is shown that there are, uh, clusters of families out there that, you know, sleep short amounts of sleep and and that's what they sleep and they do fine in all metrics and they've been looked at Mm. They're They're published. They're very uncommon. I think your average person is going to need somewhere between seven, you know, an eight and a half, nine hours of sleep. Mm. Um, what happens is a lot of people you know, live in a state of chronic partial sleep deprivation. Mm. And after a while, you just have sort of this new baseline and, and, and you think that that's just you, you know, and you you can't really tell that you're, that you're sleep deprived. Mm. So our individual differences, there are certainly people out there who probably can get away with six, six and a half and perform fairly well. Um, that's the minority. And there are people who need eight and a half, you know, and they're going to be Um, they're going to be tired with, with seven hours of sleep. Um, Most of the time I, people say, Oh, I I feel fine on five hours, nine times out of 10 there. That's not, if they tested themselves in both situations, they wouldn't be a hundred percent.
1: Super helpful. Yeah. It's very interesting. And then uh, you present a lot of research uh, to us at the annual lecture on sleep deprivation um, about then the effects of acute and chronic sleep deprivation and there seems to be a huge amount of research um, sort of looking at the different um, adverse effects of, of sleep deprivation. I, I was hoping you might be able to summarize um, just some of those. I, and I could sort of kind of tell you the broader topic areas that I find fascinating, specifically cardiovascular disease, metabolic effects, uh, immunity, particularly in our time of a pandemic right now, dementia. Yeah. Um, would you mind uh, talking a little bit about some of those effects?
0: Sure, absolutely. So um, the effects of of acute sleep deprivation tend to be more uh, temporary and, you know, they're usually reversed by recovery sleep. Mm-hmm. So acute sleep deprivation, uh, people have impaired performance, psychomotor slowing, um, trouble sort of learning after being up overnight. There are changes in sympathetic tone. They tend to have slightly higher blood pressure, higher heart rate. Um, after you know being up all night cortisol levels are up Um, they are they have problems with irritability and and lack of focus and then you know they they get a good night of recovery sleep and those things largely resolve Hmm. Um, the long-term effects of sleep deprivation sort of for folks that are chronically sleep deprived repetitively over time uh, tend to that's where kind of you see more of the adverse sort of health complications of, of a life of poor sleep and um, cardiovascular. And, and it's important to highlight that chronic sleep deprivation has been associated with higher mortality. So on oh, wow. health um, do translate into um, higher mortality for folks that regularly get under seven hours of sleep, um, you know, across the epidemiologic sort of spectrum. A lot of that is driven by what you mentioned, cardiovascular effects. So folks that are chronically sleep-deprived have a tendency to uh, high risk of developing hypertension, um, MI, um, uh, both sort of fatal and non-fatal MI. Uh, the the sort of the uh, coronary artery disease aspect of things is probably multifactorial due to effects on blood pressure, heart rate, sympathetic tone, also effects on the endothelium and on sort of the the coagulability of the environment. Um, So endogenous TPA tends to be lower. They have a more pro-coagulable environment, you know, and you associate that with um, effects on blood pressure. And so all these things combined do increase their risk for coronary artery disease. There are significant metabolic effects. There are effects on weight. Um, People tend to gain more weight if they have insufficient or poor quality sleep. There's also effects on glucose tolerance. So people can Develop glucose intolerance, go on to develop diabetes. Mm. Um, effects on immunity are uh, definitely present. Uh, inflammatory and immunity effects are harder to characterize, but there have mm. been showing that folks um, don't tend to respond as well to um, challenges like exposure to pathogens or vaccines that then don't don't mount as good of an immune response to those, which you're right, you know, in the time of a pandemic, you want your immune system to be, you know, doing great. Um, And as we're all getting vaccinated, we always, we want to have good response to to those vaccines and studies have been done with hepatitis vaccine um, and um, just uh, flu vaccine showing that folks who are sleep deprived, maybe don't mount as good a response These are usually acute sleep deprivation, you know, studies. Um, And then the dementia uh, studies are are relatively new. Those are developments in the last sort of five, 10 years, most. Um, A lot of that work's actually being done here at WashU, showing that there's sort of the, the epidemiologic side of things, showing that if you just look at total sleep time and incidence of dementia, there seems to be an association there. If you do actigraphy and you look at sleep quality and, and, Dementia. There seems to be an association there, but also studies looking, you know, at the mechanistic aspect of things showing increased levels of tau and amyloid in folks that stay up overnight. And those are very, mm-hmm. um, you know, detailed studies with CSF sampling across the circadian period for folks who sleep versus don't sleep and looking at what happens to those proteins. And um, as people live longer and these conditions become more and more have more and more of an impact you know in society sleep becomes a very important potentially area that you could intervene that could have an impact on millions of people that could go on to develop these diseases for which we have no no legitimate treatment at this point Um, so really important there
1: absolutely yeah especially the the studies i I found the one with dementia, um, even after one night of sleep, your CSF amyloid beta increased by 30% in one of the studies. I found that to be pretty crazy. Um, and it seems like pathogenically, not exactly sure if that induces it, but it's kind of a a pretty clear smoking gun that there, there might be something going on there. Right. And then, um, in terms of, uh, I think, especially for, uh, residents, what's a little bit, um, Uh, very relevant is the effects on uh, cognitive impairment and uh, motor skills. Um, Could you comment a little bit about uh, acute and chronic sleep deprivation and uh, impact on those?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so yeah, so those, those effects I think are just very important for everyday practice and important for folks to be aware of. So if you have a night of acute sleep deprivation um, or if you're, it's pretty similar if you're chronically sleep deprived as well, you there's effects on, we can start with just sort of cognition. So your ability to concentrate is lower. Your ability to pay attention is lower. Uh, your uh, memory is impaired. Your ability to retain information is lower. And I think critical for physicians, judgment and decision-making are impaired. Um, so people... Um, are oftentimes uh, more likely to, to, you know, take a risk, take a gamble. Um, they engage in higher risk-taking behavior. They're a little bit less cautious if they're sleep deprived. Um, they, they they just tend to have more confidence that's just you know going to work out, um, even if their ability to make those decisions is impaired in the moment. And there are actually studies looking specifically at sort of physician performance and physician tasks showing. Physicians making more errors, reading EKGs, detecting less, you know, adenomas during colonoscopy, having higher rates of injuries like needle stick injuries um, if they are sleep deprived. So, so there's sort of the background data on, on sort of its effect on cognition and performance, and also sort of in the field data showing the actual worse outcomes in some of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um you you know, and then there's a the motor effects too. You're just less coordinated and slower in your reaction time, which can be important for procedural based specialties. Uh, Hand eye coordination is impaired, so if you're in in a specialty where that is really critical for the success of a procedure, then you're you're not going to do as well.
1: Absolutely, yeah. No, for all our surgical specialties, where I'd say sleep deprivation is even a bigger concern than um, in some of the non procedural specialties that seems like a huge, um, thing to focus on. And I, there was a fascinating article too, by the authors, uh, Dawson and Reed that make a comparison between sleep deprivation and alcohol intoxication. I think essentially their takeaway is that, um, uh, I don't know if it was acute sleep deprivation or chronic sleep deprivation, but they draw an analogy. It's somewhere along the the lines of having like the, the equivalent of five beers or something like that is, is probably what you can expect the performance loss to be um, when you're sort of running on a uh, little sleep in, in the short term.
0: Yeah. I love that study. You know, it's, it's a study, I think it's like from the nineties. So it's an older study, but I just think it's so clever in, in sort of bringing attention to this point. Um, so it was acute sleep deprivation. I think it kept folks up for 28 hours straight And they administered sort of to the other group sort of increments of, you know, 15 or 30 milligrams of alcohol sort of repeatedly. Mm And they had a blood alcohol level of 0.1. So, um, you know, the sleep deprived, the people who are up do pretty well for the first 10 hours, which is sort of our normal day. And then for every hour that they're up beyond 10 hours, their performance starts to drop. And by the time they're up for around three in the morning, you know, that, about 16, 17 hours, they reach a performance that's no difference from someone with a blood alcohol level of 0.05%, wow. which is driving limit for, you know, most states. And then once they're up 24 hours, that's no different from the folks that are 0.1%. And, and you're right, 0.1 um, blood alcohol level is like, um, it is like drinking five beers in an hour. And I think that <clears throat> the reason that that's So relevant is because I think everybody would agree that, you know, if you're a surgeon, you're gonna operate in the afternoon and you go out and you have lunch and drink five beers and come back. Yeah. Um Nobody would be okay with that. You know, people would think that that's completely outrageous and that that you're just not in a fit state to do anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are still many places where folks are up for 24 hours and are expected, you know, to perform. And that information is not necessarily disclosed. And there may not be mitigating systems to prevent that people from being put in a situation where they have to work in those conditions. And And it just brings attention to the fact that, you know, it when if you think about the actual performance, it's it's not that different.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's very striking. Um, especially that analogy where, yeah, in, in one context, uh, if a surgeon showed up uh having just finished five beers, this would it'd be gross negligence, there'd be a huge lawsuit. Um, whereas it's essentially a similar thing happening on a, a day-to-day basis for those who are up the 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 24 hours or so. Um, but it's uh just uh, much more within the culture of of medicine, and and so um, not really approached the same way, and uh, and then I thought I found the aspect fascinating too of sort of your own perception of your sleep deprivation and your ability to um, be proficient and skilled also kind of decreases where you kind of paradoxically think you're you're more competent sort of the, the less sleep you get. Um, could you chat a bit a little bit about that phenomenon?
0: Yeah, so, so a, a common theme in, in studies of um, acute and chronic sleep deprivation, especially chronic partial sleep deprivation, is that um, people's insight into their level of impairment and even their level of sleepiness is not very good. So people's ability to sort of think about themselves and say, oh, you know, I just I don't feel up for doing this. I don't think I'm at my best is that sort of goes away as part of the sleep deprivation. And so you really need to be aware of these effects. You can't wait to sort of, I'm going to see how I feel. That's not a good indicator of how you're actually going to perform. So I, there's a study that I like to quote where they show folks these faces, and then they let some of them sleep and keep some of them up. And then they show them another bunch of faces the next day. Some they've seen before, some they haven't. Hmm. The two are well-rested, answer the question, you know, is this someone you saw yesterday or not from the picture, they make, they they get more of the answers, right. But they also ask them, you know, how confident are you in this answer? And the folks who are sleep deprived who are actually making more mistakes are more confident. Mm-hmm. So, example where there's sort of a mismatch between how you're performing and how confident you are in, in how you're doing. And sleepiness is also not a good indicator, especially in chronic sleep deprivation. So, um, you will hear people that say, you know, I've trained myself to only sleep six hours. And usually what they're referring to is after a few weeks of sleeping only six hours, they're not aware of being sleepy anymore. So yeah. that uncomfortable, sleepy feeling tends to, to plateau, but, um, but their performance is, is, you know, progressively worse, the longer they're sleep deprived, um, even though they may not, you know, have insight into how sleepy they are. So, yeah. um both sleepiness and um, just sort of confidence in your performance are not good indicators of impairment and sleep deprivation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's a fascinating trade-off and, and a scary one too. And as we're talking about this too, I, I think I have the experience a lot of the times where I'll, I'll finish a, a 28-hour shift. And particularly at the end of the 28-hour shifts, we sometimes get like a late admission. So you get called maybe around like 7am um after you've been in the hospital for sort of that 24-hour mark for a new admission and you have to sort of run and kind of wrap things up and i'll then uh go home around like 10am or so so once my shift wraps up and then the next day we'll come back to follow up on my patients and i'll always sort of check some of the notes and can't help but find like little spelling errors or, or little things that are sort of flipped around um that i just had no idea while i was doing it and probably, you know, day to day, if, if I was, uh, writing, I, I would never make kind of some of those egregious ones, yeah. but I, I can't be help to feel like, oh man, you know, this is not, not great. I gotta, right. I gotta go back and tweak these. Um, and, uh, so I, and I think that's a good segue then to, to chatting about some of the research, uh, within medicine specifically, um, and sleep mm-hmm. deprivation, mm-hmm. um, from a historical perspective, it seems like, uh, Around 2004 or so is when the, the medical community at large really started concentrating on uh, sleep deprivation and residency. And I know um, from someone who's done kind of patient safety and quality improvement, that was around the same time in 2003 that the um, To Air is Human um, paper came out, sort of looking at just medical errors in general. And I, I would imagine it was probably part of that same uh, movement at that time to really um, examine how we were doing things. Um, and you uh, cite in your lecture that you give us um, a great article from the New England Journal of Medicine in 2004 called uh, "Effect of Reducing Interns' Work Hours on Serious Medical Errors in Intensive Care Units." Um, can you chat a little bit about the the focus of this uh, uh, research study and, and some of their big findings?
0: Yeah, so that's really, um, I think, very um, hard to do and well done um, study. They were interested in you know the the shifts that you talked about these 30 q3 30 hour shifts which been the way units have been staffed across the country for a long time certainly how they were um, staffed when I was um, a resident I'm not sure kind of how things are now but they you know their the, the background is you know staying up for 30 hours we know is not good because all these other studies we've already talked about were out there and and people knew and so the idea was, let's bring another intern into the unit coverage and make all the intern shifts no longer than 16 hours. So now you're not working for any more than um, 16 consecutive hours. The work week goes from about eight hours to kind of 65 hours. Um, and let's see if that has an effect in the errors that interns make. And, and it was impressive, the efforts they went through to capture these errors, to direct observation, chart review, debriefs, um, you know, all these, all these different ways that they were looking at patient care. And so in the 16 hour shift, you know, the, the shifts are not as clean as the, the 30 hours in terms of you coming in, you know, and staying overnight. So there are folks coming in the morning, folks that start kind of midday, folks that start later, but they're all working for no more than 16 hours. And they found that it was about a third less medical errors made by interns when they're working 16 hour shifts compared to 30 Um, in particular, diagnostic errors um, are very much reduced. And um, they, uh, they showed that, you know, orders entered and procedures done were not different between the groups, which is always a concern when you make this trade-off, you know, or is there going to be a huge impact in people's education and their argument is, you know, by those metrics, at least it didn't seem to be the case. Mm -hmm. Um, and they felt like that was a a strong argument for reducing a length of shift because if you were going to make a you know a third less errors then then obviously that's you know very I think everybody would agree that that's a positive significantly positive outcome yeah absolutely.
1: yeah and uh, I thought to uh, some of the because they go through in the paper and um, catalog some of the errors that the uh, interns mm-hmm. were committing and some of them are, are pretty terrifying when you read about them. Um, mm-hmm. It's uh, I think one in particular and they tear them by, I think, serious um, error versus like mm-hmm. um, more minor error. And one mm-hmm. of the serious ones, they'll sort of give a little bit of a narrative summary. And it was like an intern uh, was trying to place a central line um, in the, the left side of a patient um, who already had like a defibrillator placed on that side. And so mm-hmm. then the line was running up against the, the wire from the defibrillator and then I think at the last minute, a senior resident came in and was like, hey, what are you doing? And uh, they were able to catch it and, and go on the correct side. But I think especially when it's errors like that that you're reducing, you couldn't can't help but think that that's going to be a, a definitely good. Um, I found it fascinating that um, sort of larger metrics of, of length of stay and mortality didn't seem to significantly differ between the groups. Um,
0: sure that there's a whole lot we can make about that, Jamie, because the study was never really powered to find those. Oh, interesting. Remember too, that they only changed shifts for interns. They didn't change anything for nurses, attending physicians and residents. And so I think it's, you know, when you're looking at patient outcomes, there's a whole team of people that are caring for those patients. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think if you, you know, wanted to look at that in a, in a study, you know, that's one unit. I mean, this is not a multi-center, you know, very large study. Mm-hmm. Um I think you would need you would need more power. So I'm not saying that it would have had an effect. I'm just saying that the, the lack of effect in this study I think doesn't necessarily tell me that you we wouldn't have seen an effect were it larger.
1: That's a great point. Yeah, particularly if they're not powered for it. And you make a good point too, if the interns are the only ones changing, you have so many different providers impacting patient outcomes. Uh, that you, you also have to factor those in. And then, uh, the seemed like maybe a follow up study to this or a spin off of this. Uh, there was a, another study that you referenced called uh, Effect of Reducing Interns' Weekly Work Hours on Sleep and Attentional Failures.
0: Yeah. And- so that, that's, I like that part. It's, yeah, it's like a, almost a subset. So they took a, a portion of interns in, in that study and they actually had them wear ambulatory polysomnography leads for, for a period of time. Oh wow. And they looked at, um, and what they were looking for were these attentional failures, which they essentially classified as going into stage one sleep as you were supposed to be working. So, you know, dozing on the job essentially, mm-hmm. um, And with that, they also did sleep logs and looked at objective measures of sleep, and they wanted to see, you know, were they sleeping more in this new schedule, and did that translate into being more alert in the workplace. And they found that pretty much everybody slept more on the 16-hour shift schedule. I think for every hour that they worked less per week, they slept for about 20 minutes more That week. So, you know, obviously it's not one-to-one, but there was a clear correlation there and the attentional failures decreased. So they had a lot less dozing off during their work um, shift compared to, you know, compared to when they were, when they were working the the 30-hour shifts, which I think is is intuitive.
1: Absolutely. And when you presented this research to us um, during residency, I think it was instructive to me the lack of a one-to-one trade-off kind of made me realize, okay, I also have to be a little bit more proactive too about, you know, the free time that I get. Um, I have to be prioritizing sleep and, and uh, self-care and stuff like that. And because if you get, you know, an extra couple hours a week, but you sort of say, hey, I deserve to now go out and party and enjoy myself. It kind of uh, trades off um, any benefit that you're likely to get. So there's some responsibility too. And so it seems like these two studies are, are, are pretty um, uh, strong in uh, their uh, conclusions, um, which is just in general, with more sleep, um, uh, with reducing the the maximum of hours that residents are able to work, or specifically interns, um, that it re- seems to reduce the errors, it reduces the attentional failures, increases the amount of sleep residents get on a weekly basis. And so then... Was it because of these studies specifically, or I guess a broader culture that led to uh, the duty hours reform, or had that been sort of going already at the time? Do you, do you know?
0: Yeah, so I think that there was a lot of discussion in terms of residency duty hours in, in the, you know, 2000s during that period, and um, and what to do with shifts, you know, what to do with these 30-hour shifts. And Um, you know, I can't, I think that this study just contributed to the data that they used because they went ahead and created 16 hour Mm. shifts specifically for interns, you know, starting in 2011. Um, so it seems like that, you know, it's, it's, the exact same intervention. So it's like, uh, I would, I would assume that it, it influenced that decision. Um, that's, you know, we can, we can, that's not what we, you know, do now. We can, we can talk a little bit more about that, but But I think that this is just, you know, part of the data that was reviewed when they were deciding, you know, what do we do, you know, with these schedules and how can we just have folks that are working with patients be more rested. Interns, because, you know, lack of experience seems to be a factor in your ability to perform an activity when you're sleep deprived. So you have more, um, if you've done it a million times before, you're more likely to be able to repeat that task as opposed to if it's a new task for mm-hmm. you that you have to sort of troubleshoot and generate how to respond to it. So, this sort of theoretical um, uh-huh. concern that the interns would be particularly vulnerable to having decisions sleep deprived because these are, you know, new scenarios for them a lot of the time.
1: That's a great point. Yeah, I hadn't considered that. And um, you mentioned too that the current duty hours are, are different than maybe what they were in 2011. And so a quick summary then of of what we're currently um, sort of bound by is that we as residents can't work more than 80 hours cumulatively over a a four-week period on a weekly basis, um, which means you could work maybe 70 hours one week, maybe 90 hours the next week, uh, 80 hours a week after, and maybe 60 hours, so long as sort of the the net average is, is below 80 hours. and you can't work more than the uh, 24 plus four as a maximum of mm-hmm. uh, um, the hours, at least for, I, I think, kind of the medical specialties. I don't know if there's some um, variations with the surgical uh, specialties in terms of their duty hours.
0: I don't know what that is this year, but I at least in the last, there is a there was an opportunity um, since 2011 for surgical specialties to apply for a waiver. So as an individual program, you could apply for a waiver to the shift length and the hours between shift if you could justify that, you know, based on the training that you had to deliver during that rotation, it was necessary for residents to work in that schedule. And then the, if that waiver was approved, then you could have more flexibility. Um, so that was an option. Um, um, I'm not sure where that is now for for surgical residencies.
1: Fascinating. And I think it was my intern year, they actually reversed or, or went back to the uh, 24 plus four requirement for interns. I think it was 16 hours until my uh, intern year, at which point in time they bumped it back to, I think, the 24 plus four as the maximum hours from the 16 hours, Uh, do you happen to know if that's correct?
0: Yeah, I think so. I have to think back. So 2011, I think is when they implemented this and then maybe 2016, Um, trying to think here, they, 2016, 2017 is when I think they rolled, when were you an intern, Jamie?
1: I think 2017.
0: 2017, that sounds about right. So yeah, Yeah. I would say that 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 fits. Yeah. So, you know, in, in in practice, the theory doesn't always work out.
1: Yeah. So they made the, the change in 2011, which mm-hmm. I think uh, in addition to uh, cutting to the 16 hours, was that also when they did the eight? 80 hour uh, work week cap?
0: No, the 80 hour work week had been in place since 2003. So that being 80 hour work week, one day off every seven, and sort of time um time between shifts, a certain amount of time had been in place for a while. I think in 2011 they um implemented these um shorter shifts. They did the 24 plus four, where I think is before it was 30. So it was a 30 hour shift. And mm-hmm. they um, They also had requirements for supervision. You know, residents couldn't just be sort of, you can just go and do things on your own. There had to be somebody that was designated that was kind of your backup that you could call. So there were some requirements to that end as well.
1: Got it. And so they they make those changes. um, And then at least the research broad scale, mainly uh, Medicare data, it seemed like where they were pulling a lot of the patient outcomes from. Um, seemed to indicate that there wasn't any big uh, differences in patient mortality or length of stay or anything um, really at any of the points where uh, these different changes were implemented.
0: Right. So they got a lot of pushback from these changes. So for one, yet they were never really able to show unequivocally that this improved patient outcomes in large data sets. So that, and and that was obviously a big argument to do this is, you know, patients are going to be safer and yet, you know, Um, They just couldn't. um, And and obviously, it's a difficult thing to measure. But there were a lot of different studies trying to capture that. And they were never able to show that changing these shift lengths for interns had a big impact there. Um, From an organizational standpoint, there was a lot of pushback. Program directors did not like this. It made it very hard to organize shifts, you know, because now it's 16 hours. People start and leave in the middle of the day. Surgical specialties really didn't like it because that meant that people were leaving in the middle of cases and switching in the middle of cases. And um, in particular for surgical residents, um, the, the residents themselves weren't terribly supportive and they felt like, you know, it eroded professionalism measures and they didn't like the, the whole sort of handoff of patients all the time. So um, I think they did a, this, the first trial was a a trial of surgery program, sort of comparing the 16 hour to the more traditional schedule and the outcomes. There weren't a lot of positive outcomes. Patient safety was the same um, and uh, the sort of access to conferences and things like that was reduced. And when people, when the shifts got shorter um, and resident, they, they had some positive measures in terms of more time for exercise and sleep, but then they had these um, sort of negative effects in terms of professionalism and patient ownership and things like that. So um, so that was overall, um, f- felt largely not to be terribly supportive of maintaining the 16-hour shifts. And there were actually some surgical subspecialties that reported a drop in their right exam scores and um, they attributed it to these changes as well so um, on the on the medical side they did a very similar trial called I compare um, and there the results were a little more mixed so the still no no difference in in patient outcomes when they tried to look at it they looked at total sleep time and it was actually not that different between the groups um the flexible and the 30hour group that the reported sleep time per week was fairly similar. They had better outcomes on the medical side in terms of resident wellness. Um, They didn't see as much of the negative um, comments on professionalism and ownership that they had seen on the surgical side. So a lot of residents um, reported positive effects in terms of time for family and time for exercise and things like that. But actual resident burnout um, measures weren't different between the groups. And then the program directors did not like the 16-hour schedules um, that, and they um, felt like they were, um, they had a harder time making sure residents had access to, you know, educational opportunities, conferences, and things like that, that they felt was important. So, um, so it was uh, not, I would say probably not as negative as the surgical trial, but also it wasn't sort of an overwhelming when for the 16-hour shifts. And so um, and so, I think between that, those are sort of the large two trials and other smaller studies. They eventually sort of rolled back the 16-hour shifts in, in 2017.
1: Yeah, and which is a fascinating result that these studies were negative given sort of all the things we talked about with the initial studies seeming uh, pretty convincing that uh, it would lead to some change um, at the very least in, in patient errors going down. And I know it sort of wasn't within the the scope of these studies to really comment on all the reasons. I don't know if you have any personal theories maybe about why we didn't see big changes.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that, I just think that things are, um, you know, they happen in a much complex, much more complex environment than when you're looking at one very specific outcome in one ICU schedule among a very specific group of interns that have a very clear understanding of what the intervention is. Um, you know, you translate this into the real world, and if you don't do that in parallel with interventions to help folks understand the importance of sleep, make sure they're prioritizing sleep. Um, during their downtime, if you're not putting things in place to mitigate um, uh, the effect of handoffs and patient transfers, you know, and how those can impact patient safety. Um, And if you also do it in an environment where um, culturally um, people are sort of very against the, the shorter shifts um, all these things can kind of undermine the effects that you could see, you know, so if your residents are working long shifts and they, um, and, and you don't see that as sort of normal for your specialty and you sort of feel like you're not getting the experience that you should, I think that can impact how you feel as a professional, you know, in terms of the subjective perception and in terms of effect on patients, you know, there are a lot of people that are caring for these patients. And if no one else's schedule has changed, Um, then maybe that impacts, um, how, how the, the actual impact on patients. And again, I think handoffs uh, have to be, have to be addressed if you're going to shorten shift length and, um, and I think you need some type of campaign or effort to make sure residents are sleeping more because otherwise they could be working less, but not sleeping that much more. And then the mm-hmm. effort that you would see in terms of people being more rested is is eroded, at least in terms of patient safety.
1: Yeah, it's, that's really fascinating. Mm-hmm. And it made me think of, you know, the the million times when nurses have have come to my rescue too with patient orders or things going on with patients, kind of give me the heads up, hey, did you really want to order, you know, this crazy amount of potassium, you know? And I say, actually, no. I'm gonna I adjust that order, and and so you do have this kind of huge infrastructure of other medical professionals who are mm-hmm. sort of checking things for you and and really um, advocating for patients as well. So that could also mitigate uh, any positive effects, as you as you mentioned, and. I thought it'd be fascinating from a, a practical standpoint. Um, currently um, here at WashU, they're sort of uh, in the discussions about, okay, do we change from the, the Q4 28-hour uh, um, schedule um, to more of a, a night float uh, type of a system? Um, could you maybe talk a little bit about a, a, what a night float system is compared to a, a, a shift kind of Q4 28-hour uh, call?
0: Yeah. So, you know, Q4 28-hours... You work one, two, three days, your regular sort of daytime hours. You sleep at night, and then on that fourth day, you work during the day, and you um, uh, stay up overnight working, or at least are available to work overnight. You know, if if the work is there, which it usually is, and yeah. then you go home on that day five in the in the morning, and then you get to you know sleep during the day and that night, and then you go back to you know, working during the day for a couple of days and and going back to work overnight, and on a night float system, it varies from program to program. But you're typically working between five and six nights a week, usually between seven p.m. and seven a.m., usually for periods of one to four weeks at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it's 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 a different type of sleep deprivation, right? So you're if you're working Q4 call, then every fourth night you're going to be sleep deprived because you're going to lose the opportunity to sleep overnight and you're going to try and make up for that the next morning, which is never one-to-one. You know, it's not like you go home, sleep for eight hours or up for a couple hours, then sleep for another eight hours. So you yeah. you sleep a little bit and then you you come in, you're still a little bit. The, the the key is, you know, can you recover that sleep during your two to three days off before you have to take call again? um the night float system is a different problem so from a uh, looking at it logistically it looks much simpler you know you're working overnight you sleep during the day you have a 12 hour shift maybe you know 13 or what however it's structured but you have between you know 10 and 14 hours at home depending on how long your shift is to sleep during the day so it looks much cleaner and much easier to handle But the reality is that daytime sleep is not always as good in quality as nighttime sleep. So now you're dealing not so much with acute sleep deprivation, but with shift work and circadian misalignment and somebody's ability to get adequate rest and perform adequately sort of outside of their circadian phase. Yeah. So it's a different challenge.
1: Yeah. And, uh, specifically for me, um, I think people listening might think um, our discussion of the um, uh, Q28-hour or Q4 28-hour shifts um, and sort of some of the limitations might make me inclined to sort of shift more to like a night float type of system. But the point I made um, when this was brought to sort of our larger uh, neurology department was just for me personally, I almost find it worse on the night float system for precisely the the reason that you laid out. The sleep quality that I get on the night float system is, is just pretty terrible um, I almost uh, feel like a vampire the whole time where I at least with the um, the Q4 28-hour shifts, um, I, after the, the long shift, I can get a little bit of sleep the next day, as you mentioned. But then after that, I can kind of go back to my typical nighttime habits until there's another call shift. So at least I'm getting some sleep, um, whereas uh, with the night float system, for whatever reason, I don't know if it's me specifically when I sleep during the day, it's kind of, I'll wake up a a lot more. I'll kind of feel like I'm in a fog. Um, when I then go to work, my body just, you know, almost feels like it should be sleeping. Um, and so I'm kind of lethargic and I really have to kind of be on myself to be alert. Um, and it also kind of takes a couple of days to really even shift into that sort of a mindset. Um, so for the first two, three days, it's almost feels as if I'm running on like no sleep for, a, a, two or three days, um, which will then just translate to me, almost having to catch myself from actively falling asleep. Um, so it's kind of a, a lesser of two evils type of a situation um, for, for me. I, I don't know if you have any inclinations about uh, either. Type I
0: of think all your, your, all your sort of your experience and your symptoms are, are pretty common, Jamie. And I think a, a lot of folks feel that way on a night float system Um, there are individual differences in folks' ability to sleep and to perform outside of their circadian phase. You know, there's um, some sort of phase resistance in terms of some people being able to um, sleep during the day and be awake at night with relatively little impairment and other folks feel terrible. You know, that applies to all circadian, like jet lag. You know, you take a whole group of people to Europe and some of them will take a couple days and be fine and some of the them feel awful for you know five six days, so there is an intrinsic sort of just genetic um, ability to to function and to sleep out of phase. But in general, there have been plenty of studies done with just shift workers. Um, people who work nights and sleep days have worse objective and subjective sleep quality are more tired and do experience negative health outcomes. And it's not just Mm. sleepiness, you know, and we're sort of focusing on sleepiness, but it's also circadian misalignment and jet lag is a good way to think about this Mm. carries a whole lot of symptoms outside of being sleepy. People can feel nauseated and their appetite is messed up and they can have muscle aches and headaches. And they just can feel there's a whole set of genes that, you know, are supposed to be transcribed during the day versus at night and you're, you know, working completely out of phase. So there are a lot of other um, effects on top of the sleepiness that you feel that have to do with working at night. And you can try and shift yourself to a night schedule, but that takes time and a lot of diligence to, to do that too.
1: Absolutely. And so it's a, a, a tough, tough problem. And I, I think as a, a way of concluding, uh, I think, probably for residents or medical students listening kind of sounds a little grim about some of the, the implications of, of what they're about to go through or are actively going through, but I don't know if you have any maybe concluding thoughts on what residents or medical students can do to try to within this system, um, prioritize sleep or, or try to make the most of it, any mitigating strategies to help them maintain their performance.
0: Yeah. I think that there is a lot that people can do. And I think it's important um to remember that, you know, residency is, you know, a finite period, you know, it's a, it's a very specific t- training time in your life. And for most specialties within residence, within residency, there are going to be spurts of time where you have a lot of demands on your schedule versus other times where you have more flexibility to get sleep. And the most important thing I think for people to understand is, Your ability to tolerate a period of sleep deprivation is much better if you come into that period well-rested. So if you prioritize sleep in your everyday life so that when you're in a clinic rotation, when you're in a light rotation, when your service is not as busy as usual, you're using that time to get the amount that the seven and a half, eight and a half hours of sleep you need that will help you get through that period where you can't get that amount of sleep. It's not going to feel good. You're still going to feel tired, but your performance and your health is going to do better because you went into that well rested. The Mm -hmm. thing you can do is be in a situation where you're chronically not getting sufficient sleep and then add to that a period where you now, you know, have to take call or have to be up overnight. So if you go into acute sleep deprivation, chronically sleep deprived, that's a recipe for disaster. So really making sure you have a good sleep schedule, good sleep hygiene when during those times where things are not as busy, I think is the number one thing. Then when you are in those rotations where your ability to, to maintain the schedule you would prefer is not there, um, just sleep when you can. You know, that's the, that's the oldest advice that people get. And for night shifts specifically, there is data showing that if you are able to take a nap before you go into your shift, especially that first night float shift, or, you know, you woke up, if you're able to sleep for 30 minutes, an hour, right before you go in, you're going to do better during that Mm. shift. And it's not going to impact your daytime sleep. So if your night shift starts at seven and you can take a nap between five and six, the data suggests you're going to perform much better overnight and you're going to sleep just about the same when you get home the next morning. So if you're a good napper and you can try and make that a routine where you take that nap, that's helpful. If you're doing a long set of night shifts, you know, 10, 14 days of night float, switching to a night schedule can be helpful. So trying to keep that schedule even on your off days or trying to keep a similar schedule on your off days. You know, maybe you're not up all night, but you're trying to stay up till four in the morning, you know, and, and sleep in so that you're not going back to days and then going back to nights. Uh, melatonin to, when you get home in the morning to sleep can be helpful. Um, caffeine for th- people who drink caffeine can be helpful, but then, you know, you have to stop that um, halfway through your shift so that, that caffeine is not then further disrupting your daytime sleep and then using sort of bright light in the evening before you go into your shift. So you're sort of tricking your body into kind of switching its day and nights. That can be helpful for long stretches of night shifts. That's not that helpful if you're going to do it for two to three nights.
1: Got it. Oh, that's, it's all incredibly helpful.
0: Mm -hmm. And then I think the other thing is just make sure that, you know, you have a comfortable sleep environment that you and your family understands the importance of sleep so that your, your phone can be off and you're not getting bothered, you know, if you are trying to sleep during the day. Um, and, and if you have a sleep disorder, you know, if you have insomnia, if you have sleep apnea, you want to make sure that that's treated so that when you do have the opportunity to sleep, that's adequate sleep. Absolutely. That
1: that definitely makes sense. And, uh, so hopefully that provides some guidance and, and definitely for me is, is a great uh, reminder to, to prioritize sleep and, and make sure that I'm getting it. Um, well, this, is, this has been fantastic. I think it incredibly important um, and, and useful topic. So thanks so much for talking with me about
0: it. Oh, no problem, Jamie. Thanks for having me.
1: That concludes my interview with Dr. DeBruin. If you like what you're hearing, please consider subscribing to my podcast, liking me on Facebook, following me on Instagram at Brain Boy Neurology, or on Twitter at BrainBoy Neuro. And as always, feel free to pass along any comments or suggestions. The opinions expressed on this show are those of Brain Boy Neurology and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of the places of employment of the Brain Boy Neurology staff. The opinions expressed on this podcast are meant for entertainment and education and should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified board-certified practicing clinician.